Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace towards us. We thank you that you have done so much for us when you sent Jesus to die for our sins. And as we study the second part of your incarnation, we pray that you will help us to appreciate everything that that means to us. In Jesus' name, amen. In Sunday school, we watched, uh, actually Jeremy picked the message out, but we watched Chip Ingram talk about the genius of generosity and how being generous is the smart thing to do for us. But what's so amazing is that we are actually following the example God sent, God did when he sent Jesus to die for us. And again, we've been looking at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 deals with Christ's incarnation, his coming to earth as a man. Last week we saw that the Father sent the Son in verses 5 through 9. This week we are going to look at 10 through 18, which is the Son coming. Uh, the message is why Jesus came. And we're going to read uh, Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. I'm reading from the New American Standard. For it was fitting for him for whom all things and through him are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. In the preacher's discussion of Christ's incarnation, he covers three primary themes about Jesus. First, he tells us of the appropriateness of his suffering. 
This suffering culminated with his death on the cross. We see this in verse 10 in the phrase, for it was fitting. Second, he tells us the implications of Christ's incarnation. These are the benefits to us as believers. These benefits are the reason why Jesus came as a human. And we will see that throughout this, he talks about different benefits, different implications of why, what happened to us and what benefits there are to us because of Jesus' coming. Third, he tells us the necessity of Christ's incarnation. Here the preacher stresses the importance that Jesus must be made human in order to complete his task. So we're going to first look at the appropriateness of the son's suffering. That's in verse 10. I'm going to read this from the Munts Reverse Interlinear New Testament. It's one that you can get see on the Bible Gateway. Um, the wording of the translation is actually a little bit easier to understand. I think it's easier to wrap, it was easier at least for me to wrap my head around. For it was appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the champion of their salvation perfect through his suffering. So we see that it's appropriate for God, the Father, who made everything and everything exists by him, that he made Jesus the champion of our salvation. And he did it, he made him perfect through suffering. The word perfect here doesn't mean that he's without flaw, because Jesus was already without flaw. The word perfect here means complete. In other words, the suffering that Christ did completed the task he came to do. Here we see the Father is bringing many sons to glory. The first thing we see here is that the Father is restoring us to a position we lost when Adam sinned. This is an act of restoration that is for many sons, not all sons. In other words, this restoration is not for all humankind in general. It is only available to those who receive Christ as Lord and Savior. How does he do this? He does this through Christ's suffering. Verse 10 says it was fitting or appropriate that he should make the author or champion of our salvation perfect through suffering. And I want to read two quotes from... Um, it's Hebrews, the Niv Application Commentary by George Guthrie. Uh, he's the one that's been writing, he wrote a commentary that has been very beneficial in understanding a lot of what's going on here. And I wanted to read these two because they get at the heart of what, what's going on here. He goes, Arch, Archeon, or Archeon, rendered author by the Niv, can be translated trailblazer. 
So the author and finisher of our faith is the trailblazer or guide, emphasizing the Son's role in bringing the new covenant people to glory. However, the word might be translated better as champion, which we saw in the month's translation. The preacher is using the idea of the divine hero common in the ancient Greek world. For example, Hercules was called champion, Archiagos, Archegos, and savior, Soter. If this is the author's intention, it is comparable to a modern preacher saying, Jesus is the real Superman. As crass as that might sound, it is simply a way of expressing a meaningful analogy that Jesus has come to our rescue. Jesus is that hero that saves us. I think that's what he's getting at here. And the second quote, in Jewish literature, the idea of perfection is applied at times to death as the completion or seal of life. Perfection in Hebrews has to do with a fully completing a course, making it to the end of God's plan. That Jesus was made perfect through suffering, therefore, connotes his full obedience to the mission of death on the cross and perhaps the adequacy of that act for bringing the children of God to glory. So we see here that this perfecting is his completing the task. And God's saying, he brought us to glory when Jesus the human completed the task he came to do. And in so doing, became the hero that saved us. So it is appropriate for Jesus to become our guide in life by first becoming fully human and walking in obedience to the Father in everything. In verses 11, actually through the rest, we are going to see implications of his incarnation throughout. Right now we're starting at the implications and we're going to see that this verses 11 and 11 through 13 deal with a lot of the implications, but he then continues adding on as he's talking about the necessity of his incarnation. But verse 11, it says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Here the preacher stresses the importance of understanding that the one who sanctifies and the ones sanctified are from one source, namely the Father. In his sermon in Athens, Paul tells them how we all came from one man, Adam. Acts 17.26 says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And in 1 Corinthians 15.45, Paul tells us, 
So, also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Even though Jesus existed long before the world began, he was not the first man. Adam was, and every human being since came from Adam. Remember, God made Eve from Adam's rib. And every human after was born, even Jesus. That is why we celebrate Christmas. That is why the preacher says he is not ashamed to call them brethren in verse 10. Because we are brethren. We are of the same flesh and blood. In verses 12 and 13, the preacher quotes Psalm 22, 22 and Isaiah 17b to 18 to support this implication that Jesus came to make us his brethren. Verse 12 saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. In Psalm 22, 22 it says, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. So it's a direct quote. <coughs> Psalm 22 is probably the most powerful and comprehensive of prophecies about the crucifixion. Here are just a few phrases from Psalm 22 that relate directly to the crucifixion. Matthew 27, 46. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm 22, 7 and 8 says, All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Oh, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. We see this fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 and 43, when he's hanging on the cross. Psalm 22:16 says, They pierced my hands and feet. We see in John 19:37 that it says the same thing. When the preacher uses Psalm 22, 22 to remind us that Jesus restored us to the family of God. He is also picking this verse very carefully to remind us just how much it costs to do this. I would recommend over the week that you all read Psalm 22. I read it this week, and I'll tell you, it's, it's a powerful psalm. And if you look at it and then you look at the New Testament passages that relate, it just, it left me humble knowing everything the Lord has done for me. This is a quote starting in the last part of Isaiah 17 and continuing to the first part of verse 18. He says, now I'm quoting the New International Version. It says, I will put my trust in him. 
Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. That's in Isaiah. Which is exactly the same as what he just finished saying in, in um, verses 12 and 13. So we see the cost of suffering to restore us to the family. And following is a unity he has with us. This is a unity of trust because we are the children the Father has given to Christ. So far, the implications of his incarnation are, one, verse 11, we have gained a family, we are his brethren. And if you look at the back of the handout, you'll see these implications listed. Two, in verse 13, we have been given to Christ. The Father has given us to Jesus. In verses 14 to 16, he also starts telling us of the necessity of his incarnation. But as we look at this, we will also see some other implications as a result. In verses 14 to 16, we see, as the preacher tells us, why it was necessary for Jesus to become a human to accomplish his work. He will also add to this list of implications. Therefore, since the children, starting at verse 14, share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Revelation 24:14 says, the death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. The death he is talking about that he saved us from is not the body dying. Every one of us, our body is going to die unless the rapture happens. What he's talking about is that eternal separation from God. Being separated from God for all eternity. That's the death he's talking about. That's the death to truly be fearful of. That's the death he came to put away, to deal with, to render inoperative. That's the power Satan has over us. Hebrews 2.14 says this, that it is that Jesus participated in flesh and blood and tasted death for us to render the devil's grip on us, powerless. It is clear here that Christ's death accomplished this, not his resurrection. It's important to understand, his resurrection is not what accomplished our salvation, it's his death. It's the sacrifice he did. What his resurrection was, when we look back we see God raising Christ from the dead in chapter 1 and inviting him to sit at his right hand. This is the proof that the sacrifice was accepted. The resurrection is the proof that God accepted the sacrifice. But the sacrifice is what saved us.
Here is another implication of his incarnation. Three, in verse 14, he tasted death for us. Satan is no, no longer has the power of death over us. And you'll notice I'm looking at these implications as this is what he did and this is what it means to us. Each one of these we're going to look at in this way, which is why I put them as a list. Hebrews 2.15, and it says, And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. So, as a result of his death on the cross and the sacrifice he did and freeing us from the death, paying the price for our sins, two more implications come out of this. First of all, in verses 14 and 15, it says, Satan's power is broken. We do not need to fear. (coughs) And the fifth implication, verse 15 We do not need to fear. Therefore, we are no longer slaves. He freed us from the slavery of sin. It's so very important to understand. We don't have to do what Satan wants us to do. When our flesh is telling us to do something, we can trust in the Lord to give us the strength to not do it. Or when we don't want to do something and we know we should, we can trust in the Spirit to give us the strength and courage to do. (coughs) Hebrews 2.16 For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. This is an interesting thing that he does here. He's, he's starting in, and again, he's talking about this, and he's saying the descendants of Abraham. And I'm going to read a quote again from this commentary by Guthrie. And it says, in 216, the author follows this statement of proclamation with an explanation, the son helps Abraham's descendants, not angels. This verse begins with, surely, gar du po, meaning something to the effect For as we all know, the congregation having been exposed to early Christian doctrine, we'll look forward, or we'll see this in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, would have understood that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was not for angels, but for those who inherit the promise of Abraham. And then 6, verses 13 to 17. The word translated descendant in the New American Standard Bible is in the original sperma, or seed. So the logic here is, by becoming Abraham's seed, he is able to help Abraham's seed. I know that sounds strange, but it is the way it is. In other words, he became that seed of Abraham, that one seed of Abraham, That was promised. God promised Abraham. He made a promise to deliver us. So when he became that one seed, he was able to help all of Abraham's seed. All of his descendants. 
Galatians 3.16 says this. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So when he's talking about the seed here, he's talking about Christ, but he's also talking about that Christ being that one seed is able to help all of Abraham's descendants. And the key to that is that he has to be of the same flesh and blood. So there are two things going on here. First, Jesus had to become Abraham's seed in order to fulfill his promise to Abraham. He promised Abraham, I would bless you. And in your nation, all nations will be blessed. That's the promise he's fulfilling. Second, Jesus only helps Abraham's seed or descendants. And there is also a very important implication here. Verse 16, he only helps Abraham's seed. So the question is, what about me? I'm not Jewish by descent. The implication is, therefore he makes us Abraham's seed when we trust him. When we trust in Christ, by faith we become a descendant of Abraham. He only helps Abraham's seed. So the important implication here is, by faith, he makes us his descendant. Now the preacher's conclusion continues on, and he is touching on Jesus being a high priest, which he's going to deal with later in the book to much greater detail, but he's starting a topic that he will deal with later. But there's a lot here. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he was able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I just want, before I start in on this, I just wanted to get a, get a um, talk a little bit about the word propitiation that he's talking about here. I'm going a little bit off my notes. The word propitiation means full payment. In the Old Testament, we see the sacrifices and they're, they're linked to the word atonement. And in, in Romans the King James actually translates a word that is more appropriately translated propitiation as atonement. Atonement is an Old Testament word. And it means a covering. Those sacrifices covered the sin until the debt was paid. When Jesus died on the cross, this propitiation is the full payment. So all that time, those sacrifices and everything that was going on in the past, and, and a lot of what he's talking about is, is, 
is getting into this. See, he's, he's again talking to people who understand these things. They already know what, what the, the kinds of thoughts because he's speaking mostly to people who grew up studying the scriptures and knowing the scriptures. And most of the or at that time, all of the scriptures were Old Testament passages. But he's saying, this is different. When Jesus died, his sacrifice was different than those of the Old Testament. That this is a payment in full, not just a covering. And again, here the preacher is wrapping it all up by saying that Jesus had to be like his brethren in order to become a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus is the merciful high priest because he became like us to perform the only sacrifice that would be acceptable to the Father. This sacrifice is what made propitiation for our sins, what paid the debt in full. So when I come to the Father, I don't have to worry about the sins I've committed. God has dealt with them. He has separated them as far as the east is from the west. And as far as you can go east, you can continue on going for all eternity. And as far as you can go west, yeah, I'm going the wrong directions. <laughs> but as far as you can go west, you can go for all eternity and still not get to where you'll no longer be going west. So it's from eternity to eternity or infinity to infinity. That's how far God is separating our sin from us. And that's what he did. He paid it. It's not there anymore. Jesus is also the faithful high priest in that he was tempted in all points like us. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Remember, he could not be the faithful high priest unless he was risen from the dead. He's not alive. He can't come to our aid. In closing, I want to go over the implications of his incarnation one last time. One, in verse 11 we saw, we have gained a family, we are his brethren. Two, in verse 13, we have been given to Christ, the Father has given us to Jesus. Three, in verse 14, he tasted death for us. Satan no longer has the power of death over us. Four, in verses 14 and 15, Satan's power is broken. We don't need to fear. Five, in verse 15, we don't need to fear. We are no longer slaves. Six, in verse 16, he only helps Abraham's seed. Therefore, he makes us Abraham's seed when we trust in him. And seven, in verses 17 and 18, we have a merciful and faithful high priest. He will always help us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a merciful and faithful high priest. And that through the generosity of who you are, you have given us your, your own life to pay for 
for our sins. And we pray that you'll help us to remember what this means and help us to truly work it out and to follow your example to be generous to others, to show your love to those who are in need, to be a helper to those, to walk in a way that shows you to others in their lives in a very real way that they might turn to you and come to you for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.